This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. May 15th is International Day of Families. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about families and how community can play a significant role in supporting families. Families, they come in all shapes, sizes, colors, and backgrounds. But one thing in common in every family, they need a mum. My guest today, Dilly Noel, is known formally as the executive director of the Andrew Street Family Center, but she is also known informally, and perhaps more importantly, as the mum of the Andrew Street Family Center. Dilly Noel, welcome to Humans on Rights. Thank you very much. Good morning. So Dilly, let's just uh, get this right out of the hopper. How does the name Dilly come about? Okay. (laughs) My name is Dilly. But at school, when I went to school, we, I went to uh, all classes, like all grades in the same building, in the same room, actually. They were telling me that my name was wrong and that I was spelling it wrong. And so they were calling me Delia and Della and all sorts of things. So then Dilly was something that just I just feel comfortable with because during school years, it just frustrated frustrated me so much not to have my I know what my name was I kept thinking you know kind of thing so that just kind of caused me and then I got started to be called Dilly and I feel more like a Dilly than a Dilly (laughs) well you know what having met you Dilly is a great name for you and uh, and I agree with you it's uh, it suits you to a T now one of the things Dilly when you talk about uh, family and we're going to get into this you come from a fairly large family tell us about your family Yeah, I come from a family of 16. There are eight boys and eight girls. And we have uh, one set of triplets and two sets of twins in my family. Uh, We are a Métis family. But uh, as I grew up, basically my younger years till my uh, probably mid, maybe even 30, uh, I didn't know I was Métis. I was French-Canadian as far as I was told and stuff like that. So I didn't learn about my heritage about being Métis till later in life. So, but I'm you, proud to be Métis. Absolutely. And, and you were, your family was born in somewhere in rural Manitoba? Yeah, they were all born in Manitoba in uh, 20 miles south of Richard, Manitoba. It was a small, uh, actually Métis community, but we didn't know that we were all called French Canadians. Right. And so, so Dilly, would you have started speaking French at a young age? Yeah, that was the first language I actually learned. And then when I got to school, you weren't supposed to speak French. You had to speak English because the teacher there didn't know French. So then you kind of lost your French. And then when I went to grade six, finally, and then they do French. And it was crazy because it was actually uh, an English teacher from England, like with a really strong English accent that was teaching French. So it was kind of a, oh, my God, this doesn't sound like French stuff. 
but uh, so I kind of lost my French language. I understand a lot of it, but uh, I don't really speak it. So uh, that was disappointing. But uh, school was not a great thing for me. I uh, I didn't like school and thought I'd never go back to school because <laughs> I was in grade when we moved to the city. It was uh, there was an abusive situation with my mom and dad, and it was a life and death decision for my mom to make that day. We ended up there were still eight of us at home, and uh, my twin sister and I were the oldest at home at the time, and we all ended up uh, moving to the north end of Winnipeg, and uh, that's why the north end of Winnipeg has been my home since then. I was 15 then, and I'm 68 now, 69 next month. So I've been for a long time. This is my community and I love this community. Yeah. Well, uh, well, I'll, I'll wish you a, an early happy birthday, Dilly, for sure. Um, so Dilly, tell me when you arrived, so you're 15, you arrive in Winnipeg. Did you go to school in Winnipeg? Yes. So uh, we went to, uh, it was Aberdeen school then. It's not there anymore, but it's uh, Nichimakwa school now, but it used to be Aberdeen school for grade eight. Well, I stayed in grade eight for three years and passed the third year on condition. I'm sure the condition was they never wanted to see me in the classroom anymore, but uh, <laughs> it was just lack of so many classes and stuff. I never heard of history or science or any of those things. So uh, my education wasn't great, so it took a long time to catch up. But at least they left you in the same classroom long enough to be able to catch up. They don't do that now. Right. No, the, maybe that's a change for sure. But Dilly, coming back to you, so you obviously being in school, uh, the traditional term of schooling was not something that was uh, kind of high on your radar. Yes. But having said that, let's just get past schooling. How Walk us through how you got out of school. And the journey that takes you now to becoming the mom or the executive director of the Andrew Street Family Center. Actually, grade 11, second day of school, I skipped school and found a job. We were able to get jobs easier then. So started work in that and ended up getting married. And we ended up uh, having a young son. And when he was four years old, I was trying to get him into nursery class at William White School. And when I tried to get him in there, because his birthday wasn't until November, his best little friend next door was getting in and stuff. They told me that I couldn't get him in because there was no room. But then there was a community outreach worker there. And she said to me, you know, if you volunteered in the classroom, you could probably get him in this year. So for my son, I was off work at that time, actually on unemployment at that time. So I said, I was scared thinking I had nothing to offer. But I thought nursery, I should be able to, I come from a family of 16, I should be able to watch some kids, right? And I, so I, I agreed to do that. And that's how things started. I started volunteering and this worker really supported me and believed in me and kept, so I started believing in myself and that, and became the head of hot dog day and, you know, a parent council and my husband got involved and. We became founders of a MAPS housing co-op in the community. Like we got involved in stuff like that. So people at the school and that encouraged me to apply for uh, Winnipeg Education Center, which was back at the time. It's now, uh, but it's the University of Manitoba off campus for social work or education. I knew I wasn't going in education, but social work, when I found that 
That doesn't mean I need to be a child family service worker, but I could do community development. And that was the kind of stuff I wanted to do, work in the community with people in the community, get involved and support families that way. So once I found out that was so, I applied for the program and uh, got in. Uh, so it's a four-year university course for bachelor's of social work. I said I'd never go back to school, but I went there the first day. So I got my books and I came home and I looked at my books and I tried to start reading my first book. And I had to look at six words out of the first sentence out of the dictionary to find out what they meant. So I began to cry and say, what the heck am I doing? But I'm stubborn like my mother. So uh, I went back and graduated four years later with my Bachelor of Social Work degree. Congratulations. And then after that, I was fortunate enough, the worker at the school, the community's worker there, community school coordinator, the position became available. So I applied for the position and I was lucky enough to get the job as a community school coordinator at William White School, which is across from Anders Street Family Center. So I worked there for about several years. We were looking at safety issues in the community and stuff like that and with the board uh, parent council. The building that holds Andrew Street was a building of concern. There was uh, hot goods and drugs happening here. It was the police were here all the time and stuff like that. And there was supposed to be a program, an after school program happening in the building, but because the gangs had taken it over. And I guess the director wasn't getting board support from her board. She was burning out and stuff like that. So the funders, of course, especially United Way, they find out because they know what your programs, they're always checking on programs and stuff. So uh, so we went to them because all the funders were going to take their funding away. A group of us, uh, from the principal to myself to community people, we went to the funders and said, could you please stay with us so we could at least pay for the utility bills and stuff like that. We will get funding to renovate the place. We'll go out. We want to survey the community to find out what kind of resources they would like. And, and so we need the utilities to be still working in order to be able to do this kind of work. So they agreed to keep funding us, the minimum funding, you know, in order to pay all the utilities and those kind of things. So we then uh, surveyed over 300 people we hired. I was a community outreach worker, so I knew how to do door knocking and that thing. So I trained, we trained eight people from the community, a male and a female, community members that hadn't possibly got any jobs before that, and taught them how to do the surveys. And we did over 300 surveys in our community to find out what community members would like in this building, you know, for resources and those kind of things. We didn't tell them, you need parenting programs, you those we asked them and they chose, they wanted parenting. So Dilly, just let me just uh, recap this for a second so I understand it. The The building that you currently are in, which is the Andrew Street Family Center, was it called at that time, uh, the Andrew Fra- Family Street Center, the time when it was basically a drug haven and was being run no. by, you know, different uh, people that were not interested in supporting the community? No, it was the Pritchard Place drop-in program that's was because that was the program that was running here and the other part of the building was basically 
vacant. There was nobody using that part. So I guess they were using the whole building, but yeah. So it was run by them. But like I said, the board wasn't functioning. They were going to lose everything. They hadn't paid taxes. Like it was not in a good, it was terrible. It smelled in here. It was gross. You and a group of people went yeah. out into the community and basically asked them, what do they need? Yeah. Once we took over the board, then we went out to the community, got money to do that, and went out to the community to find out kind of what our community existed, the population, basically 85% Indigenous, ages of kids, big families were, and what they could, what they wanted in resources, and also if they would be willing to volunteer to be a part of what was happening here. Well, like me, when I was asked if I'd volunteer, I felt I had nothing to offer and I couldn't. We had a list of about 300 things. Can you paint? Can you babysit? Can you play an instrument? Can you knit? Can you name it? We had it on that list. So when they would say, you'd like to volunteer, if we had, they'd say, oh, well, you know, they'd have that look. I don't have anything to offer. But once we went through the list with them, they're going, oh, I could do this. Oh, I could do that. You know, kind of thing. We had, I think it was like, over 200 people that could play guitar, <laughs> that kind of thing. But they were willing to help. So we had a lot of people then who signed up to say that they would volunteer their time. So you're really going to the community and asking them what they want. And once they start to tell you, as you're trying to get them more engaged, when they say, we don't know how we can help, now you're starting to sort of challenge them a little bit to sort of say, well, you know, you've got skills that you don't even know that you can use here. And so you brought that out to get them more involved? Because we knew as a board, when we took over, we knew that we would, we put in policies that the board had to be a majority of community members, that then it's a board of 13, and that the staff needed to be hired from the community as much as possible. So I have 26 staff, 22 are from the community. So, and the board, is, there's uh, nine out of 13 that are community members on the board. So like that, we wanted to make sure that the community had ownership of what was happening at the center. Because as far as I'm concerned, our power is the community. If you're good to the community, they'll be good to you. <laughs> and so tell us, how did you start to put in some of the programming that when you were generous enough to take some time, Dilly, to walk me through and some of the things that I saw at the uh, Andrew Street Family Center are quite extraordinary. It ranges from newborns to parents, and it's all built around the support of families. Tell me a little bit about how did you come up or you and the community come up with some of the programming and how do you decide? Well, you decided because they told you, but what did they tell you they needed and how did you respond as, a, as an organization? Yeah, there was certainly a longer list than we could possibly have in the center. But then we went back and we had a community meeting to put out what things community wanted and then prioritize which ones we could do. And then we tried to find the funding out there. We had hired Josie Hill as our first executive director and because uh, I was on the board at that time. And she really went out and worked at trying to get funders and that's because we knew we wanted a preschool for Indigenous children or Korean Ojibwe because that's where the biggest nations and the biggest population in our area. We knew we didn't want to be called an Indigenous organization. We wanted to be called a community organization because anyone and everyone that lives in our community is welcome at the center. And so we knew that we, we would get funding 
much of her, a lot of funding will say, okay, zero to six, but families don't work to zero to six or seven to 12, that kind of thing. So we knew in order to get the trust and a place where families could really grow as a family, not just as one person in a family, we needed to have resources that would kind of be welcoming to all ages and all family members so that families could actually be in the adult drop-in, having a cup of coffee or doing maybe a load of laundry and stuff while their kids were in preschool program or while they were downstairs in the after school program with the older kids because this building was not a trusting building when we took it over although once we cleaned it up and and renovated and got money for renovations of course and did those things and made a difference the community and it's word of mouth once the community started coming then they'd start volunteering then they'd get their siblings or or aunt or uncle or cousin or whatever um, to come to the center and that. So it became where, I mean, we had over 100 volunteers, community members that had never worked before or anything. But because we had showed them just making coffee for someone is important and it's a skill. You know, you being able to talk to somebody, you welcoming people to come into the center later on because of what they, that's a skill. Like, so we built on that. So that's why programs happen. We had a full-time volunteer coordinator. So the volunteers could possibly get some opportunities to build on their skills and get references for possible future employment opportunities, those kind of things that they couldn't get before. We had an adult drop-in. So adults could just drop in, have a coffee, play a game of crib, maybe do some puzzles, you know, and stuff like that. Or be a part of the their community events that we did, barbecues and, and had, you know, games for families and stuff. Just to show that this was a place that was welcoming. And to us, families mean one person, 20 people. <laughs> it doesn't matter. They're all family, you know, because unfortunately, there are many families in our community that their families are their best friends and their worst enemies kind of thing sometimes for them so here there was a place where they could trust people and because most of them they knew they seen them in the community because I hired from the community those kind of things so once they seen and there was an opportunity for them for employment also you know and those kind of things so but that's how they we got a preschool program so for the little ones that's three to five-year-olds at the time we had an after-school program, six to 17-year-olds. We have the adult drop-in. We have a parent support program. So if they were having trouble with their workers or needed furniture or needed just someone to talk to or someone to go with an appointment with them, we had three workers that we got on board right away to work. And those were community people that have life experience and were able to be able to help them, not tell them what to do. We're not counselors. But we were able, they would trust us and tell us the truth. Yeah. So Dilly, you know, one of the things that happens that I'm somewhat familiar with is, you know, there's the term drop-in center. And sometimes there's a focus on a drop-in center for after kids or after school for kids. And that's kind of their main focus. And it's fantastic. This isn't trying to be judgmental. I just want to sort of bring it back always to the fact that the name of your, the name of the incredible building, I'm going to sort of say the, the community housing that you provide 
you know, that's, uh, that's my term. But you, it's Andrew Street, and I want to focus on this family center. And so it's, it is all about family. So it's every age and, and all of everybody, family is involved. Yeah, and I think one of the ways we prove that we are reaching families is because we're reaching as many men as we are women now. Interesting. And we have a number of single dads out here that come and get that support. And because they may not know, one of our guys, he actually works here now because his kids are like 17 and 18 and stuff like that. But they were babies, a baby and a one and a half year old when that man came to our door and said he needed help. You know, we want to take the kids as, uh, unfortunately, his partner was on a sniff and that. And just, so he came here and he would come here, bring the kids in the, we have a children's program area where they can be there. Well, he can come and go see the parent support, get ideas, you know, help them with housing, help them out to get on assistance properly and those kind of things. And I know when the girls got older, he'd come in for help for feminine stuff and so, but he knew it was like, it's hard to talk to anybody about that, but he had trust in us because he says he raised his kids at Andrew Street Family Center, you know, kind of thing. He was able to keep his kids this whole time too. He never lost them. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And one thing, Dilly, that, uh, that uh, is, is clearly important to, to you and the Andrew Street Family Center is that there's nourishment for all levels. Again, as uh, young children, you know, infants, newborns, teenagers, adults, food is, is really important. Talk about how you ensure that there's proper food for your community. Okay, because things have changed since the COVID. Like prior to the COVID, we always did food. Anyway, we had big community soup days and stuff like that. And, and we try to give out food. And we always had toast or something available for people to come that came in. And all our programs fed the kids. Drop-in after-school program. We know some kids would come straight after school and never left when we closed our doors. So we made sure they got a full meal plus a snack. Everyone got it. So it didn't matter if you had food at home or not. So that's kind of thing. So we and we always had snacks or food up here, so that the food was part of. It's part of community. It's part of family. But now that COVID is around. Now we have, because we can't be open to the community, well, we can be open, we might be able to get 10 people here. We have an average of 30 to 50 kids in the after-school program every day. So we can't pick just 10. So instead, we have to figure out how can we best support our community and more of our community. For Instead of allowing two, three families to come in, how do we support the thousands of families we have? So we started a... Uh, lunch program hot lunch program so we serve we cook 150 hot meals like tomorrow they're gonna have uh, homemade meatloaf and little baby potatoes and corn for dinner with with a fruit and, and juice so like it's a good meal like that so that this way the families we know that everyone's getting a meal a good meal every day and that we also do emergency food because we know some of our people just are not getting enough groceries or enough food, especially through COVID. It was hard to get stuff sometimes because the stores would be not 
have the stuff or the families were scared to go to the stores, those kind of things. So we did a lot of uh, even buying at one time where we were buying diapers, I mean, uh, toilet paper and stuff like that because they couldn't get any. So we made sure that we at least had a few for our families and that. So we started feeding them that. Plus all, our Ed Start program was still running because it's kind of, a, that's the uh, indigenous program for preschool as it runs on, on the south side of the building and could have its own exit and entrance without being anywhere else in the building. So that's why we allowed it for a while, but only we usually have 20 kids in the morning and 20 kids in the afternoon. And now we have like five kids in the morning and five kids in the afternoon because of the COVID. So we always feed people and we make ampers at Christmas time. We made over 250, we made 256 ampers. Those are big ampers for family because we knew we were closing for a, a week about. I mean, enough food, not money, enough to make it so bad, yeah. And so now we've gotten, and we've gotten good support from community and and businesses. We have a grocery store that's now, and it's been, I guess, for this year, starting probably in January, they started where every Monday we can go pick up and they give us all the meats and some fruits and vegetables that they may have. So that becomes our emergency food. So that we're able to give potatoes, onions, you know, a thing, a hamburger, so that that's real substantial. It's not just, the, I don't know, a sandwich with the see-through slice of meat in it. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm kind of anus when it comes to certain things. Yeah, but, I, but you know, Dilly, I think that, one of the elements that is so important, again, coming back to supporting family, and as you say, and I, I talked about that every family needs a mom, you know, I know there'll be people out there that might take offense to it. For example, you gave a very good example about a single dad, you know, trying to raise two kids. But I look at what you have established there, and and I know that it takes a number of volunteers and boards and lots of people, Dilly, to, to get this done. but. Clearly, this has been a passion of yours. You have overseen this project. You have seen it grow. You've seen, I mean, you, when you signed on, you never thought about COVID. What, what did that mean? Why are you so passionate about families and community? Because uh, I've seen too many agencies in that, that say they're about community and supporting community. And I've also had to deal with some of some point in my life too where they didn't treat you like human beings they treat you like a number and they treat you like you don't know anything they don't ask you what you need or what what you need to succeed they tell you this is what you need this is what you're not good at that you're not it was like seen negative and and that and I knew I love my community because people here they might not be the most educated in that, but they're the most loving people. And they will take care. They may not have a lot, but if they got something, they will share it with you. So this is the community I wanted to make sure we could get the resources for them that would help them succeed and give them an opportunity to use their voices and their skills to make it work. Right. And so one of the things that I saw when you walked me through the Andrew Street Family Center was a big sign that said family is where life begins and love never ends. 
I thought that was uh, really kind of a tremendous signal for what is important to you and all of the people that work and volunteer there and the community that you serve. Yes, that, that says it all to me. We're family here. And many people, like I say, some people call me mom. I used to work at the school. Some of those kids now were the parents that came here. And then now their kids are parents. So it's like a couple generations. I've been here for a while. And I've been saying I'm going to retire for the last five years, I think. And I'm still here saying I'm going to retire in a year and a half now. Well, a year, maybe. At 69, I'm hoping for 70 this time. This is my community, and I'm just scared to let it go to anybody, I think. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, Dilly, it's not, it's not a job. You know, it's not, you're not doing a job. I mean, you're fulfilling a passion that is being uh, recognized in the community as something that they want to support and be a part of. I mean, that, that's pretty spectacular. I met some people there when you walked me through, and some of them have criminal records. And, you know, having a criminal record is very difficult to get employment. How do you assist and work with people to give them that opportunity to get back into the workplace? Well, we've uh, worked with, we're lucky enough to work with our insurance company that's been with us since the beginning. We have not changed our insurance company. Even though they might charge a little more one year, I won't change because we had good results with them. Why would we? We talked to them and said, look, I want to hire this person because of bonding and stuff. That's what they're saying. They can't be bonded. And then that's why they don't want to hire people. And that. So I talked to them and that, and they were willing to allow us to be able to put a few people on, get them bonded because their criminal activity had happened years ago. Like people need to, males, especially the males, but females too. You get a criminal record. No. Nobody wants to hire you. Half the time, you can't even get housing. But they expect you to stop being a criminal or to do, stop doing these negative things in life. But if you're not giving them an opportunity to get employment or, or get skills for that they can be employable, then you're. what are they supposed to do to live? That's all they know, possibly. Or, or that's, So how do you give them, if you don't give them any other opportunities, how do they change your lives? Then they end up, you know, being in jail constantly and stuff. But not because that's what they want. It's because they don't get opportunities, usually. The two staff that I have that are just grateful, you know, on the best staff, if you need them to stay 15 minutes later, it's not like they're at the door at five. They're at the door when the work is done, you know, and they're grateful for it. And so they're great models for other people to give opportunities. And then I do a lot of tours and stuff to agencies and that and businesses and that. That as also, I keep telling them, they need to hire People with criminal records, you need to find ways to hire them. How do you expect to change if they're not given other opportunities? Like, that's what I do, is just find, how do you get the community, the families, to be able to function if, if things keep getting in their way? So we try to get the things out of their way. Walk with them. They learn. We're not doing it all with them. We're just community people, just like them. Well, I hire our families, our parents and, and stuff like that. They're part of, they used to come here for resources. Now they're, they work here. And so they help other people. 
so they know what it's like. Yeah, and and I think Dilly, that what you're doing is you're trying to create an opportunity for maybe other businesses or other agencies to sort of see firsthand how successful it can be if they're just given a chance or an opportunity. I mean, if you can bring people in and tell them what their background was, maybe they had a criminal record, talk about that, that's fair enough. But what are they doing today? What opportunities and what are they bringing to the community today? And everybody, I think, wants to find a way to make a contribution. But as you said, not everybody's given that opportunity. And that's what I mean. And the family's ears, like, it's a revelation for them to believe that their voices are important and that they do know. They know what they need. They know what they want for their families. They love their kids. Unfortunately, they're not the best parents sometimes, some of them. But then if you never talk to do something, it's like if you're never taught to make toast and you just eat bread, someone says to you, make toast. You don't know how to make toast. You know, kind of a simple little thing like that. But that's what I mean. So if residential schools took the kids away from the parents, so the parents didn't know, didn't become parents, like how do you raise kids if the kids aren't there? And then the kids come back. Now they're 18, 17, 18. They're parents. They've never really had that parent role in their lives. So then how do you become that good parent if you haven't had those roles? So that's what we try to do is like, okay, we're good role models for you. Things can change, you know, and opportunities can be there. A voice, use your voice. Don't let people tell you. Well, and I think that one of the things you shared with me, again, just it's uh, always something that um, it, it's, all, I just call it a teaching moment, as simple as it is that it's one thing to give somebody who has a food emergency or is looking for something of substance to give them, a, say, a can of beans. And so, I mean, that's I've, fair enough. You give them a can of beans, but they might not have a can opener. That, that was so many times. Like, so you needed to find out what is it that people need and why do they need it? And stuff. Like phones. Oh, everyone's got a phone. No, no not everyone's got a phone. Technology, everyone's got that. No, our community don't have technology. A lot of them don't know how to use technology in a in a good way. <laughs> Facebook kind of is dangerous for families sometimes because they only see the bad stuff, right? They don't see all the good stuff. Somebody makes a mistake, everyone's on top of them, and that's the end of the world for them. Yeah, you 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 showed me a phone, a dedicated phone line in a separate room. What's that? Tell me about what, what, what's that for? We call the community phone room. Yeah. And that's for anyone in the community to be able to, that don't have phones at home and that, instead of being on a pay phone, which is very hard to find now, but you'd be outside, phone your worker because they need an answer to something before you can get your check. Well, they'd have to wait outside with their kids and buy a phone booth to get their answer here. We have a community phone that come in. The children can be in the children's room. You can be sitting having a coffee, waiting for that call back. So two hours later, you get the call back from the worker. Finally be there instead of leaving, missing it again, and then you're punished for not making that contact, you know, kind of thing. So here, they're able to make that contact or leave. If they have to leave, they can leave the message. That phone will be answered by a staff or a volunteer. 
and whoever it is will take a message. And if we need to take a walk to in the community to get that message to that family, that's what we do, you know, kind of thing. So that's what that phone was used for. And I don't know how many times they was used for phoning police and ambulance and, and stuff because they'd come in and need. It really is. It was. It was just a simple thing. It's a closet, basically, with a phone in it. The chair. Well, not now. We've got a bunch of boxes for our lunches, but <laughs> our breakfast program. But that's what it was for. But a simple little thing like that. Such a difference. Yeah. And Dilly, when you when you get a chance to, you know, reflect back about when you started in the community and, and getting a sense of why that was important and why families in that community meant a lot to you. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen over your time as you've become the mom of the Andrew Street Family Center? Some of it, like generations of people that were on assistance that are now working, that got a job here, first family member that has a job, got a job here. Now their kids are working. Their kids are going to school. Their kids uh, see school as important, you know. And, and those kind of things and that opportunity, I could get a job. Not, because when we first started, kids used to say, well, girls would say, 12-year-old girl, we go, oh, well, what are you going to do when you get, oh, I'm going to go on welfare. Ask some kids, because that's all they knew. Now to see that there is opportunities for their employment and those kind of things, their supports, you know, education, that kind of thing. A lot of our families have gone back to school, you know, I've I've gotten jobs, I've volunteered someplace and then gotten work, those kind of things. I've gotten references because they volunteer here. They've gotten on the board. They've never been on boards before. Our board, we call it the learning board. We have people that definitely need experience on boards and know how a board operates, but we also have community people that have never been on boards. So we teach them what a motion is, why you make a motion, you know, those kind of things, how you you end a meeting, how you start a meeting, everything about meetings. So they're learning as they're on the board and they know they're here. Our board members at the time are at the center. So it's not like they don't know what's happening in the programs and that. So they have influence that way. But a lot of those parents now have gotten on parent councils, they're gotten on their daycare boards and those kind of things because they now their voice is important. They do have a voice again. If they don't like something, something's not going right, they have a vote, ability to say, you know, that's not right, or we need to change things and not only say it, they're willing to play a part in getting it. And I think one of the things that that, you know, makes you sort of the incredible community leader that you are, Dilly, is you're a straight shooter. Yeah, that could be good and it could be bad, but so far it's been okay. (laughs) I think it's been pretty doggone good for you. I don't like being talked around circles about things because then you really don't get to the point. I like to get to the point of things. And that's all I am with the community and that's how the community better relates to us. But you also learn some community people you need to talk to a certain way and work with them. And it takes a long time to be able to get them to start trusting and, and, and starting to tell you real the realness in their lives so that we could really work together to try to get things, you know, that need to be worked out 
or opportunities for them. Yeah, it's safe to think that I'm, a, I know I'm a community leader, I guess, in a way, but I don't see myself as being more important or, or better than anyone else. And I think that that's the important thing. I never forget where I came from. I came from a family of 16. You know, we always, my dad was a trapper, a hunter, a fisherman and, and stuff. So we always had food on the table. We always had a place to live. But, you know, there's, for education and stuff like that, it wasn't the case, you know. So when we got in the city, it definitely. So I say I come from a, it's not like it was a bad thing. That family of 16 taught me a lot. And we shared and we cared about each other. And I think that that's kind of, it's my family now has gotten bigger. <laughs> It's a real community. No, I, Dilly, I was uh, thrilled to have a chance to uh, walk through the Andrew Street Family Center with you just to understand a little bit more about what, about what you are trying to achieve. I don't know if this is a fair question just to sort of ask you towards the end, but is there a typical day for Dilly Noel at the Andrew Street Family Center? You always think it's routine but there's no there's some things that are routine for sure you know you're gonna be on zoom for this meeting <laughs> you know for the other because we're multi-funded we're just not funded by one agency we're multi-funded so there's multi-reports multi you know zoom meetings and that so those kind of things meetings are kind of regular now but as the day goes on there'll be someone who talk someone that might know me from school well, they'll want to talk to me and my door is open. I, I'm the boss per se, but I'm a community member and someone they can talk to and I will turn them into the staff that they need for the support they need. But they need to know they trust me and they want to make sure that I trust the person that they're, I'm referring them to, you know, kind of thing. So it's a good thing. But now I've got staff that have been here like for 20 years and stuff like that. And it's not because I pay them well. I certainly do not pay them well. I I feel bad about that, actually. But they're, they have ownership of what happens here, too. They've seen a difference in their lives, and I think that they continue to want to help others. They forget sometimes where they come from, but I have to remind them every once in a while. But for the most part, they are good to the community because they know the community, and they are the same as the community, so they're not better than it. They just had an opportunity that maybe someone else didn't get. Yeah, for sure. It's been a delight and an honor to speak with you and learn from you and to know you a bit better. If I was going to end this podcast by simply saying, when we think about family, what advice would you leave to anybody listening to this podcast about the importance of family? I think the importance of family is that it doesn't have to be blood family to be family. If you have someone who cares for you, that's family. And so if you have many people who care for you, you have a big family. But as long as you have someone who cares for you, whether they're blood related or not, that is your family. And don't feel bad about not maybe having a good relationship with your blood family because you can build a new relationship with other people that really care and want to be part of your family. That's a great way. To end this podcast, I couldn't think of a better way myself, Dilly. So thank you very much for your time and for what you do. I look forward to many, many opportunities to sharing time with you. Thank you so very much. Well, opportunities came to me, so now I'm passing them on to other people. 
Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie Mae Bituin. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.